The Nation State of Play podcast is produced by IBC Media in San Diego, California. Hi, and welcome to Nation State of Play. I'm your host, Brian Miller. On each episode of this podcast, we explore high-impact topics determining the future of our nation state. Well, this is a very special episode today because I have a co-host, my, my friend, my colleague, Chad Peace. Chad, thank you for agreeing to do this today. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. And I'm, I'm excited because we have our guest today, uh, someone I've known for well, probably over a decade now, He's the executive director of Open Primaries. And uh, he's been thinking about reforms like ranked choice voting in New York and nonpartisan primaries in California since, you know, the four reformers were arguing in a corner about where to go next. Stick with us. There's more to come after this quick break. This is the Nation State of Play podcast powered by Neptune Ops. The COVID pandemic has hit America hard. Nationwide, Black individuals have seen 2.6 times greater infection rate than their white counterparts. The news is especially frightening for African Americans who are at a greater risk of severe complications from COVID-19 due to underlying conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, and obesity. I'm Dr. Shirley Weber, the Assemblywoman from the 79th, and I'm encouraging everyone in our communities to do their part. Visit BlackCovidFactsSD.org. Welcome back to the Nation State of Play podcast. Well, this is a very special episode today because I have a co-host for once, which is my friend and colleague, Chad Peace. Chad, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Brian. So Chad, I want to let you introduce our guest, uh, tee up up a topic that is very relevant in the news these days uh, about ranked choice voting and just reform in general of our election process, something that you and I have had the chance to work together on recently and on an ongoing basis. But Chad, uh, for the listeners, he's one of the nation's foremost experts in the election reform movement and all of these topics relating to the rights of independence to vote and what we can do to generally improve our election system. So that's why I wanted to ask somebody much smarter than me to co-host today. And Chad, that I'll turn it over to you. Well, at first, you know, smart's a relative term. <laughs> uh, I'll let you take that wherever you want to. <laughs> um, you know, our guest, uh, John Updike, I, I've known John for, I think, probably over a decade now. Uh, John's been involved in the reform space, I think, since it was four people arguing in a room about uh, how to improve our election system. I think today, especially with the New York, and that's the focus of discussion today, New York uh, having moved to ranked choice voting in their primary elections, uh, we thought it'd be a good topic since, you know, everyday folks are talking about election reform now. Um, California, for context, you know, went through a long series of trying to open up its primaries, getting beaten back by the Supreme Court. Um, uh, Most people are familiar now, especially if you pay attention to California politics, that we have nonpartisan primaries. So part of it, uh, why we wanted to have John on the show is to say, you know, what's going on in New York? Put it into context within, you know, a larger kind of movement for election reform and the rights of voters. Um, and see what might be next across the country and here in California. All right, John. So as a New Yorker and somebody involved in election reform for quite a long time, you know, give us your take. What, what's going on and what happened in New York? Oh, God, New York. New York politics is just such a cesspool of corruption and deviancy. Uh, you really want me to 
go in and describe that for you. Yes. I guess you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're some kind our, of our glutton love, for our, punishment our, and pain. So, yeah, but our, our listeners love cesspools and deviancies, so please okay. continue. Yeah, so I want to know, how do you get a real election reform passed with 72% of the vote in a cesspool of corruption? Well... All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna set some context, and most people would disagree with me on this. So I, I don't want you to think of me as the. Uh, this is my opinion, um, but there's been this tension in New York politics for the last 20, 30 years, because New York City is a democratic town. It's a machine town. It's a Tammany town. It's been run by the Democratic Party since there was a Democratic Party. And roughly since the, I don't know, the, the, the 80s, there's been this kind of bubbling up, uh, you know, recognition that the Democratic Party has produced kind of chronic poverty, chronic underservice, chronic poor education system, chronic, it's, it's a big city with big city problems. And we have a political machine that's just been very uh, unresponsive and unproductive. And that produced Giuliani, that produced Mike Bloomberg, Mike Bloomberg, who ran as an independent and got elected. And connected to that, um, there are now over 1 million independent voters in New York City, people that say, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, I don't want to be in a third party, I'm an independent. So that's been the backdrop for the last 20, 30 years of politics in New York City. And one of the ways that has expressed itself is through these fights to say this primary system that we have in New York, where Democrats get to vote in the Democratic primary, Republicans get to vote in the Republican primary, and then uh, everybody else is excluded, which is this system is used in only a handful of cities in the country. It's like, it, it's a completely outdated system. Um, there has been a 20 year fight to change this and the Democratic Party has fought back against it, tooth and nail, tooth and nail, tooth and nail. Okay, so that's the backdrop. Okay. Let me let me ask you to expand on something you said there. So when you say the vast majority of cities don't use it, you mean vast majority of cities don't have partisan primaries at all? Right. They just have a nonpartisan election, and 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 they do it in a variety of ways. Sometimes sometimes it's a one round election. Sometimes it's a two round. But the notion of using party primaries to elect city councilmen and mayors and things like that, it's just not done in the city. There's only like three cities of the top 25 largest cities in the country that do this. The nonpartisan system is, is much more the norm through red states, blue states, purple states, the country. So New York's a holdout. I think a couple years ago, for a combination of good reasons and negative reasons, there began to be a conversation about using ranked choice voting in the Democratic primary, in the primaries. And let me tell you the good reasons. The good reasons are we have these primaries in New York where 12 people run, the leader gets you know 29% of the vote, and then there is a runoff that four people vote in to determine who the nominee is. So it's a terrible system in which candidates, I mean, Bill de Blasio, our mayor for eight years, 
got less than 5% of the citizens of New York to vote for him. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a system designed to, you know, produce, you know, elected officials with no public mandate. And one of the features of that is these runoff, these primary runoffs that, that are, you know, very low turnout. So people were saying, if we do ranked choice voting, uh, it's going to change that. And that's the positive reason to use ranked choice voting. And I, I commend the activists that pushed that and made that happen. But there's a dark side to this. And this is something we in the reform movement are less than honest about. We're less than upfront with each other about it, which is ways in which politicians are extremely savvy and they sometimes pit reforms against each other. And what they were looking at was a situation in which there's a million independent voters that are a shutout. There is a drumbeat for change. There's the Bernie Sanders and AOC phenomenon, which are kind of like getting all these young people active in politics in New York, not as Democrats, not as Democrats, but as independents. And they're saying, something's got to change in this system. I mean, this system is, is 150 years old. So why don't we embrace the ranked choice voting issue? And then again, which is being promoted by reformers for very positive, important reasons, but the establishment embraced it for their own set of reasons, which is so they could say, hey, we're reformers. We're changing the system without changing the fact that 1 million New Yorkers don't get to vote. So now we have ranked choice voting in New York City, but it's not used as ranked choice voting is used in every other city in the country. It's used in a party primary system where, where you still exclude millions of people from participating. So it's complicated, it's messy. And then the Board of Elections screwed up implementing it. But, you know, I mean, that was just in a trial run. What, what the reports are is that it went, objectively, it went pretty smoothly. Um, there was higher participation. You know, we have a, a, a winner, Eric Adams, who I happen to know and like. Um, we have more minority representation. It's been positive. I think ranked choice voting is, is a step forward in New York City. My concern is that it not be used to shut down the reform conversation in New York, that it be used as a stepping stone to find to dealing with the fact that we have an exclusionary system. And I think that that's a challenge because there's going to be some members of the New York City Council and, uh, and the whatever who are going to say, hey, we did rank choice voting, mission accomplished. New York politics is now you know, fixed and, and all set. No, New York politics is partisan. I mean, the Board of Elections in New York State, New York City is partisan. You're not allowed to, I, I'm an independent voter in New York. I'm not allowed to work at a poll in New York City. It's illegal for someone who's not a Democrat or Republican to volunteer or get, you know, to work at a poll. Um, the elections are administered by partisans. The, the campaign finance board is partisan. Everything is controlled by the Democratic Party and ranked choice voting, while a positive step forward, is not a, you know, hey, we fixed everything and the common cold. And it, it, it's, 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 it's a component of a much bigger problem. 
you just got done doing some work in Florida, which was almost successful. I think there you're, you're probably uh, challenging a different side of the aisle for the most part. Um, can you put into context what's going on in Florida and, you know, I mean, it was, it was, uh, uh, you know, I, I spent five years doing work in Florida, Florida's get this. Okay. So back in 1997, the voters passed a referendum with 62% of the vote, uh, that says in certain situations, cause they have a party primary system for, for state and federal elections. They use the nonpartisan system for all their municipal elections in the whole state. But Congress, state legislature, they have a Democratic primary, Republican primary, and it's closed to independents. And 30% of the state is independents. Okay. But they passed a referendum in 1997, uh, 90, yeah, 97, that said in races in which there are only candidates from one party. So it, it, picture a very red area of the state you get three people running for state assembly, they're all Republicans. So there's a Republican primary, but there's no Democrats running. In scenarios like that, the Republicans would be forced to allow the Democrats and the independents to vote in that primary, because that primary is essentially the general election. Does that make sense? So they passed this rule saying, let's make this happen. The Democratic and Republican parties within one year of this new law taking effect, because 40% of elections in Florida have candidates from only one party. This is not just some rare occurrence. This is the, it's almost the norm. They've, done, they've carved up the state into Democratic and Republican districts. Um, they created something called the phony write-in to go back to closed primaries. So they would, they would, they would have a candidate write in their name in the primary, thus triggering, oh, I'm running as a Democrat, even though they're not really running a campaign, we trigger going back to closed primaries. The media was all over this, voters hated it. It was such a cynical manipulation of the system. So over the, since 1998, there has been a drumbeat in Florida. We have to just open up the primaries. Forget this loop, loophole situation, we just need nonpartisan primaries. We finally got it on the ballot in 2020, partnered with uh, a, a successful business leader named Mike Fernandez, who put up close to 10 million of his own dollars in Florida, um, built a vibrant grassroots network throughout the whole state. And um, the day we got it on the ballot, we were certified by the Secretary of State. We were sued by the Democratic Party of Florida and the Republican Party of Florida on the same day. And it was the day after we were certified for the ballot. Uh, and they said, this is illegal. You're denying our rights as a party to nominate our own candidates. And we said, you have the right to nominate your own candidates. You just, that, that shouldn't be a public function. Why should the taxpayers be funding that? You're a private organization. And we won those lawsuits. Um, we were on the ballot. And we won, we got over 50% of the vote in every county in Florida, except for three, we ended up getting 57% of the vote statewide. Um, we won, interestingly, some of our highest vote totals over 60% came in some of the deepest blue counties around Miami Dade, and some of the deepest Trump counties, red counties up in the in the panhandle. 
But in Florida, in order to win a referendum, you have to get 60% of the vote, not 50% of the vote. So if we had run this campaign in any other state in the country, it would have been a, a huge success. But we had the, you know, the dubious uh, distinction of getting 50%, 57% of the vote and losing. So Florida continues to have a, a closed primary system, but it was a wonderful campaign. Uh, we mobilized thousands of volunteers. Um, we got great media coverage, but we just couldn't get over the the uh, the sixty percent hurdle. But I think if we get it back on the ballot, we'll do that. So, John, that's great context. I'm I'm curious as to how you would respond to Californians. Um, and you know, I'm a Californian. This topic comes up all the time, which is we do have open primaries here. We do have this nonpartisan top two primary. Um, what what do you think it has accomplished in California? How would you answer that question? Well, again, I'm 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 somewhat of a contrarian in that I don't think reforms accomplish anything. I think that's a mistake of how to see it. I think what reforms do is they better position the citizenry to make some new conversations happen and to do politics in some new ways. I think that sometimes when we think, oh, we're going to pass this reform and then that takes care of it. I wish the world worked like that, but it really doesn't because frankly, political forces can, can adapt to any new system they want. So that, put that in context. Um, I think, though, that that part of what has transformed in California is that you now have an environment in which voters can do actually what they like doing, which is voting for candidates from different political parties. More and more Americans are saying, I don't I, I just don't lock me into this particular silo. I want to be able to vote for who I think is the best candidate and not be limited to the candidates of one party. So I think that's a significant accomplishment because it better reflects where the American people are, where Californians are. Um, two, it creates competition. I mean, in, in the year 2008, California was the least competitive state in the country when it came to elections. Chad knows this off the back of his hand. In the entire decade between 2000 and 2010, there were something like six politicians in California who lost their jobs. Six in the entire state over a decade. And I think uh, two of them were like involved in a, in a political scandal with Jack Abramoff. You had job security for life in California because once you were elected, you were kind of insulated from the public by these party primaries and non-competitive general elections. So now you just get more turnover and politicians have to work harder to stay in office. And then the third thing, from everything I've read and all the people I've talked to, there's just a night and day change in California with regards to Democrats and Republicans being able to work together in a, in a more collegial, productive way in the legislature. I mean, would you agree with this, Chad, that, I mean, 15 years ago, there was, there were these news reports of Democrats and Republicans that wanted to work together, having to meet in secret because it was so, it was considered taboo in Sacramento. 
Um, now, I don't know. Everything I'm reading from California Forward and other groups is that there's, there's these environments in which in, environmentalists and business and ranchers and, you know, the, the, the Central Valley and the coast, they can at least, they can come and fight and argue and debate policy in a way that's productive. But no reform, I mean, you guys have huge problems in California with housing, with fires, with your education system. These are real things. I think that the top two system has contributed in a small but meaningful way to having a fighting chance to do something meaningful about those issues. Well, I'm not in Sacramento, so I don't see the day to day. Brian might know the, you know, the inside baseball stuff. What I do see and interested in Brian and John's take though, from a consultant's perspective, you're running an election. I think there is a much greater opportunity to appeal to different segments of the electorate that, you know, under a partisan system, you know, there's only one incentive, find out who's in your party and talk to a group in that party that the landscape changes. Now you have, now you can talk to 100% of the voters and convince them to come um, support you from day one. But uh, I'd like to think that we probably would be a lot more partisan. I think for sure be more partisan had we kept closed primaries. Obviously, it wasn't a silver bullet. There's still the partisan forces. There's still the consultants that run partisan focused campaigns. Um, so I, I don't know, maybe Brian, you probably have a better insight being a, up there near Sacramento. Well, Chad, I think you're making a really good point about, about the consultants. Let's pick that scab for a minute, which is it creates an opening for reaching in campaigns to people of different parties and people who are in no party. That doesn't mean that the campaigns are taking that over. Right. right. Um, be, because we have a lot of very traditional consultants in California who's, who still think on both sides of the aisle, this is a comment about both sides of like, I just need to nail down the base. I'm going to go, you know, I'm running on the right. I'm going to, you know, run on Fox all day. I'm running on the left. I'm just going to run all my ads on MSNBC and CNN. And, um, you know, but but that opening's there for creative consultants. I'd like to think Chad and I are in that latter group, and um, and I think you you can make real progress when you approach it that way. Now, as to the question about Sacramento, um, I don't think there's a lot of uh, antagonism between Democrats and Republicans, John. But for a different reason, which is just Republicans are just not relevant in Sacramento. There's no there's no reason to to have anger. Um, it's it's like it's you you. Republicans are so powerless in Sacramento that the the real fights are within the Democratic Party. Sure. We say we have a two-party system in Sacramento. We have the liberal Democrats and the moderate Democrats. And the reality is like all the conversations of consequence happen within those two standoffs. And and I to me, that's actually where you can see the open primaries has had a big impact because I don't think those mods in many of those districts would have had a chance if it weren't for open primaries. Right. And so, you know, and so, and so it'd be easy to look at it and say, oh, well, we don't have any independents elected statewide. And, you know, I think we have one independent in the legislature, his status is always in flux. Um, and that may be true. And we don't have a lot of Republicans, but, but I do think the reality is the Dems who are there would have been so much more from the left 
that you wouldn't even be having those debates between the mods and the libs in many cases if it weren't for open primaries. But Chad, is that- Isn't there an argument to be made that they might even actually be the exact same people, but they're forced to at least, you can say pretend or, or, or represent, you know, further to the left had it not been for nonpartisan primaries. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, these are adaptable, malleable people for sure, so. Um, I mean, I, I was having, I had a, a really um, good series of conversations with Charlie Wilson, who's one of the vice presidents of the Cal Chamber. And um, he actually made a presentation to a group of people I brought together in Miami uh, for the Florida campaign. And one of the things that he said is that the Chamber of Commerce can pick up the phone and they can get any Democratic legislator on the phone. They will take their call, they will hear them out, they will relate to them seriously. And the reason they do that is that with a handful of exceptions, those Democrats realize that there are thousands of businesses in their district and they might be progressive and woke and committed to you know, uh, a Green New Deal agenda and be far left, you know, however you want to categorize them. But one of the incentives in the open nonpartisan primary system is that it doesn't benefit you to isolate yourself from moderate and conservative voices in your district. It's just there's no there's no electoral upside to doing that. I, I, t- I had lunch with Ro Khanna. I mean, the guy is Bernie Sanders's co-chair. He's as left as you will find in national politics. He represents San Jose, he's a Democrat. He's got all these relationships with charter school people, with business people, with conservative religious leaders, with all kinds of people that don't conform to his viewpoint, but he represents them in Congress. And they, they, he, you know, he, he's found a way to include their voices uh, in his representation in Washington. Most states don't have that. Your point is that is in part, let, let's just say it explicitly for the listeners, because they can vote in his primary and otherwise yeah. would be irrelevant. In fact, not even allowed presumably to vote no. in his primary because they'd be registered Republicans in that yep. case. Yeah. No, and I mean, Eric Swalwell has said, he has said that he has zero job security that if he doesn't represent the people in his district, and Eric is, again, a progressive Democrat. He represents Oakland. This is not a moderate. This is a left Democrat. And he has said to me, he says 50% of the people in my district are either Republicans or independents. 50%. It's not 12%. It's 50% in Oakland. But in the old system, that 50% would not even matter one iota. And Eric says, if I want to stay in office, I need to represent my, the Democrats in my district, but I need to represent those independents and I need to represent those Republicans. So I'm going to go knock on their doors. I'm going to take their phone calls. I'm going to include them in our conversations. I want to hear from them. That's how I'm going to stay in office. It's not because he's an idealist. The guy wants to be in Congress. And, and you know, the, but, but the same incentives are in New York, where I'm from, where you have a closed party primary system, they want to stay in office. The incentives in New York and Florida and Pennsylvania are don't talk to those people. 
The way you get elected is by talking to the five to 7% of people in your own party that vote in a closed primary. You win the majority of those people, you get the nominee, and then there's an uncontested general election. Boom. They're the same politicians, but they're running in different systems, so they behave in very different ways. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. I, I would argue, as I think about this, you're, you're making a lot of really interesting points that I haven't thought about before, but I think you might even see this more clearly in our statewide offices in California than in the legislative districts, because, you know, the legislative districts are going to be subject to gerrymandering, so you're, you're still you know, going to have that influence on kind of the partisan makeup. But if you look at our governors, our attorney generals, the people who are consistently winning statewide offices, they tend to be from the moderate vein of California, even though we are a very progressive, uh, you know, two to one Democratic Republican state. I mean, you know, Jerry Brown may have a reputation nationally as, you know, Governor Moonbeam, who's a fiscal conservative, a staunch fiscal conservative, actually drew a lot of conservative and independent support for his fiscal policies. And, and even Gavin, um, you know, Gavin's from the mainstream wing of the California Democratic Party. Our mainstream wing may not be the same as the, you know, Illinois Democratic Party um, or the North Carolina Democratic Party, but he's, he's, you know, he is a mainstream California Democrat. And so I, I think, I think it has had a moderating influence in particular on those statewide elections is my point. But Chad, I'm curious as to what you think about that. No, I, I think that's right. And that, and that goes back to the nature of reform, right? And, you know, in New York, right, centrally, a one party uh, city and uh, in state for that matter, you know, it's similar is that I think the ranked choice voting folks, when you look at the reform through the, the eyes of a New Yorker, I think one of one of the issues that is we need more candidates to choose from. And as John pointed out, the Democratic Party was at least able to contain that expansion of choice within their closed primary. Um, California, um, you know, there's the set of reformers that say, you know, it's not necessarily about having more choices. It's about who can even make those choices, who's given the right to make those choices. And really, at the end of the day, both sides are trying to realign the incentives so that uh, representative are incentivized to appeal to more people. Um, so I think in that case, when you ask the question, what 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 has the effect have been in California? I think the incentives have been aligned. More people now matter in terms of getting rep, uh, getting elected and then being represented in California than under the cold closed system. Now more people will have more choices, which a derivative of that is the candidates that run in a Democratic Party will have to appeal to more people because they need those second and third place votes. So it's marginally better than the system that preceded it. Um, but as people in the wonky reform world, like John and I, I think there's a long way to go. And the only one thing I, I would add to that is, you know, John's perspective and mine, frankly, uh, a lot of times can get challenged as, oh, you're independent, so you're anti-party. I think it's actually ironic that, you know, um, if you if you take it to its logical conclusion, reform is really good for the parties because it broadens the tent that your party can have and represent more people. Um, I think that's a division between, you know, the partisans and those are coming from a more independent reform, reform perspective that needs to get reconciled. Um, but it's uh, unfortunately, I don't think it has yet. 
But I really wish the parties would see it in their own self-interest to explore some of these reforms because, you know, I think the difficulty of governance right now is a large part because they're, they're, they're held captive by a very small number of voters. And if they weren't, they'd be able to get more stuff done and make different deals. Yeah, Chad, I think it's a really good point. If I could add another self-interest for, for any politicians that are listening, because we know um, we have a lot of those and staffers in our audience, is if you are a California politician and let's, you know, you're working your way up the ranks of the legislature and you want to run for statewide office one day, as we know you all do, you, you should want to be in a position where you can have a broader tent to Chad's point. Cause it's, cause you know, we're, as, as we, as we see, when we get to those statewide elections, we do tend to elect more moderate candidates, but yet the vast majority of districts are so extremely gerrymandered onto one side. If you're opening that up, you're going to give yourself a lot more political flexibility to be in a position where you haven't boxed yourself out of future statewide office or future congressional office or even national office. Um, and, and so, you know, if, you, you can, we have a long history of California politicians seeking um, cabinet positions and the vice presidency and the presidency and things that even go beyond our state borders. But the biggest limitation on your ability to do that is if you get so boxed into the corner through a closed primary system that you have no ability to speak to anybody beyond your base. So that, that's a purely self-interested reason I'm throwing out there to consider. Well, I think a, a connected to that, Brian, and I think you, you put this very well, is that opening the primary, going to a nonpartisan primary doesn't guarantee anything. It just simply creates space for something new to emerge and something I'm hopeful of, and I think it's very relevant to where we are right now as, as a country, is that I'm hoping that there will be leaders, candidates that emerge in the next two years, four years, six years, that recognize that the way in which the national media and the national parties are spending millions and billions of dollars convincing Americans on the left that conservative Americans are the devil and on the right that liberal Americans are the devil, that that tearing of the social fabric, there, there's not one way to repair that. But I believe something that would contribute to repairing that is, is if there were candidates that would run for office and explicitly talk about building a coalition of supporters of people that disagree with each other, that don't see things eye to eye, but the process of coming together behind a candidate is gonna be part of healing the, the state and healing the country. I think. I think you would get a tremendously positive response to that. I think there are Americans, um, Katie Fahey in Michigan told me this, the number one reason that people volunteered on her campaign to end gerrymandering in, in Michigan, and they polled this, was because they wanted to work with people that had voted differently than they had in the 2016 presidential election. Trump voters wanted to work with Clinton voters and vice versa, because there was such a division being created, you know, within people's own families. And um, I think the California system and other forms of, of open primaries, at least they, they create the space for those kind of new candidate coalitions to emerge. And I'm hopeful that they will. 
Chad's rolling his eyes at me like you <laughs> idealistic <laughs> optimist. Is, what are you I'm, talking about? This ain't ever going to change. I've never been accused <laughs> of having a lack of idealism. Hey. <laughs> John, thanks for being with us today. And for those of you who want to learn more, go to openprimaries.org. Uh, John's been working on this issue longer than anybody I know in the reform space. And Brian, I want to thank you for bringing me on as a co-host and letting us hijack your show for a little bit. <laughs> now it's a pleasure, Chad. Thank you for doing that. And John, thanks so much. Um, great topic. I learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners did. And thanks all the listeners for tuning in, streaming, downloading. Please subscribe to Nation State of Play wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, keep an eye out for new episodes posting every few weeks. The Nation State of Play podcast is produced by IBC Media in San Diego, California. We invite you to share story ideas, comments, and questions. Find us at NeptuneOps.com or on Twitter at, at NationStateOfP1. Again, that's at NationStateOfP and then the number one. Follow us and subscribe to listen to all of our episodes as we continue to explore the inside stories driving California policy. American democracy is good, but we can make it better. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers includes organizations across the country who are working right now to build a better democracy by opening primaries, implementing safe, secure voting systems, reducing corruption, and increasing transparency. Listen to our weekly podcast, How to Win Friends and Save the Republic, to hear updates from the latest movements in the democracy reform space. Subscribe and learn more about us at nonpartisanreformers.org.